Well, that intro video is really funny, but it hits very close to home in our marriages, doesn't it? Married couples don't always communicate well. They're offering differing objectives, differing styles, differing expectations, and on and on. And that can happen even when neither party is actively sinning against the other one. The result is often broken communication, hurt feelings, and discouragement, or a sense of hopelessness that the situation is never going to get better. Well, as we've already covered up to this point, there is good news. There is hope in Christ and His promises found in the gospel. God has ordained the covenant of marriage and has designed it to be a blessing to the married individuals and everyone around them. Now, in this session, we're going to be looking specifically at communication in our marriages. We're going to be looking at some pitfalls to healthy communication and some guiding principles for working out of conflict and restoring communication that blesses both the spouses and most importantly, that glorifies God. So let's jump right into the first section, the goal of communication. Now, if I were to ask the question, what is the goal of a married couple's communication? I know we can begin to list a number of things out, things like coordination. You know, two people living together need to coordinate things. And the needs in those schedules, when you add kids into the picture, the coordination just balloons bigger and bigger and bigger. Another area is romance. Now, I'm going to let Mickey cover this in more detail in our next session. But suffice it to say, communication plays a vital role in our romance. There's things like information sharing. Married couples just sharing what they think about things, things they learned, things they discovered. And then knowing each other better is another area we might answer. See, it's impossible for you to know everything there is to know about your spouse when you get married. You probably know the major things, but I bet you've had one of those moments where something comes out in conversation where you're like, wait, wait a minute. I've known you how long and I'm just now finding out you like avocados. How did I not know that? You know what I mean with that? But even if you did know everything about your spouse, we don't stay the same. We change. The person your spouse married is not the same person today. See, our likes and our dislikes change over time. Our interests change over time. Our experiences change us over time. Our feelings change over time. I mean, the way I felt last night is not necessarily how I feel this morning. And not least of all, by God's grace, believers are growing and becoming more like Him as He sanctifies us. See, we are in constant need of learning more about our spouse. What don't I already know? What has changed? How does my spouse desire to change? What new thoughts are bouncing around in their head that were not there last week or even just an hour ago? All these things are important, but they can be summed up in this. The goal of communication in marriage is relational intimacy. The goal of communication in marriage is relational intimacy. Am I growing in my relationship with my spouse in a way that fosters and produces relational intimacy? Wayne Mack says this. He says, when people have communicated effectively, they are mutually strengthened, encouraged, and enriched. That is the standard by which we must evaluate our marital and family communication. Does it foster harmony, unity, and emotional closeness? Does it draw people together? 
Do we experience not just physical closeness, but emotional closeness? See, we communicate to build each other up, to support each other, to enrich the relational intimacy, to educate, to unify. So with this goal in mind, it's important to understand some differences in how we communicate. Our second section this morning is differences in communication. Now, Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We've spent some time already talking about how marriage joins the husband and wife into one flesh in this conference, but some of it bears repeating in the context of our communication. We know the Bible speaks of the complementary relationship between a husband and a wife. Both persons are uniquely created by God. They have equal dignity and value because they each are an image bearer of God. Now, becoming one flesh does not mean that the uniqueness of God's creation is somehow homogenized or diluted in each person. The Bible says they become one. It does not say they become the same. See, the goal of marriage is not to transform your spouse into the likeness of you. It's not to make them think like you or act like you or like the same things you do or process through things just like you do. Spouses are a complement to each other and the oneness in marriage is enriched as spouses flourish in the wise differences of God's design of each of them. Your spouse with his or her unique personality, background, abilities, and yes, even their weaknesses, they are the perfect mate for you and should be received and treasured as a gift from God to you. He has designed marriage this way and he's done it for your good. And don't these differences often show up in how we communicate to each other? We're not alike in every way with our spouse. And not being aware of this can propel us into misunderstanding or presumption and conflict. So it's important we consider ways that we're different from each other with our spouses. How do we communicate differently? Wisely understanding and navigating this is critical to our goal of achieving and protecting relational intimacy. Now, there are often stereotypes in the differences in how men and women communicate. For example, there's the stereotype of men talk about facts, why women talk about feelings. Now, there is a reason that these stereotypes exist. But please resist the urge to assume your spouse perfectly fits a particular stereotype. Often a spouse may surprise you by not being like most men or being like most women. Study your spouse. We've been talking about that already. Study them rather than presuming you know what is true about them because that's just how men are or that's just how women are. So what are some differences in communication styles we might want to consider? First one's this, personal versus impersonal. Does my spouse's communication tend to focus on people in relationships or does it focus more on things? Another style is objective versus subjective. This is the facts versus feelings style. 
For example, when you ask someone how their day went, one person might start recounting to you their schedule. I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this. Another might answer that question by specifically drawing attention to moments in their day where they were most emotionally impacted. See, the person who tends to gravitate toward talking about feelings can also get repetitive in their communication, especially if their spouse is dialing into the facts of what they're saying and not dialing into the feelings of what they're saying. If that is your spouse, it is imperative you find out why that feeling is so important to them. It's like the video we just watched. It's not about the nail. Gary Ricucci says this about his wife, Betsy. He says, when she shares um, how it affected her, expressing it once may not be enough. Repetition for her is a form of emphasis and depth of expression, a kind of emotional identification with what happened that goes beyond a simple matter-of-fact opinion. So guys, if your wife is repeating something, don't allow yourself to become impatient. With gentleness and genuine interest, find out why it's important to her. You just may find out it should be important to you too. It's good insight from Gary Ricucci. All right, another style, general versus detailed. This plays out in a wife asking her husband, so did so-and-so have a baby? Uh, yeah, they did. Was it a boy or a girl? Uh, it's a boy, I think. And men are good with that often. The wife might be perplexed by like, well, how long was the labor? Um, how much did the baby weigh? How tall was it? Are they going to nurse or are they going to use formula? Was it a home birth or was it something done in a hospital? The wife often has a lot more questions about that. Now, it's important to understand there's not a right or a wrong to these styles. Yes, certainly there are times where one style might be more appropriate um, or less appropriate. Like It's like being at a funeral and asking a grieving widow for every detail about the minutes leading up to the passing of their spouse while the service is going on. How long did the ambulance take to get there? Was he lying on his face or was he lying on his back? You can see how that would be highly insensitive and the style of being detailed would not be appropriate there. Discernment is necessary for sure, but understanding your spouse's tendencies, and more importantly, how they differ from you, is going to help you go a long way toward effectively communicating. So what are the things my spouse and I should be talking about? That's our third section, the content of communication. Now, there is one continuum that some people call a style, but I'm going to argue it's more than just a mere style difference. That category is this, stated communication versus implied communication. Proper communication is more than just saying something. It's also more than just hearing what someone has said. Truly effective communication involves someone sending out a message to another person, that person receiving the message, and then that recipient communicating back in a way that demonstrates they understood the message. They close the communication loop. See, the more a message is implied and not directly stated, the more opportunity for misunderstanding to occur. Think about it. How many disagreements and conflicts start because 
somebody said one thing and the other person heard something different. For example, if my wife tells me she left her purse out in the car, I may respond by saying, okay. Now, what she may have meant is, can you please go and grab my purse out of the car since I forgot it there? Another example, I may say, I'm having a really hard time seeing what I'm doing. What am I actually trying to communicate to my wife? Am I simply stating the fact that what I'm doing is hard and I, for some reason, want her to know that? Am I explaining why something is taking so long for me and why I'm running late to what I said I was going to be doing? Am I wanting her to come and help me? Am I just wanting her to know I'm struggling in my heart and I'm tempted toward anger? Am I drowning in self-pity and what I want her to do is feel sorry for me in that moment? You see, Stephanie's response should be drastically different depending on which one or ones of these things are really indicative of what I'm trying to communicate to her. But how is she supposed to know which of these I'm saying or, or if it's something else entirely if I'm not more specific in my communication to her? Now, to make matters worse, I most likely have expectations tangled in with my words. And if she doesn't pick up on those and respond to those expectations, whether it's meeting them or correcting them or clarifying them, conflict is probably waiting right around the corner. So much is at stake in my expression of a task being hard. Therefore, it's so critical that I communicate clearly and effectively exactly what I am intending her to hear and if there are any expectations tied in with it. We're going to be talking more in a bit about unmet expectations, but do you see the danger in implying too much or assuming too much? Yes, the greater the relational intimacy, the greater likelihood my wife can pick up on my implications and my expectations. But the only way to be sure is for them to eventually be directly stated to her. So what are some specific categories of communication that should be in every marriage? We talked about some of them earlier in our first section. Coordination, partnership. This is the daily life together business meetings that we have just for things to work well in our households, around schedules, around tasks, around plans that we have, big ones and small ones. You see, part of this type of communication is setting aside time to dream together. I so appreciate Nick and Jenna talking about that in the panel last night, of the setting aside time they do to dream together. Is your busyness productive towards shared goals or is it just noise in your life hampering your ability to be effective in the things that God has specifically called the two of you to? Another area of content that we need to have is getting to know each other. We've talked a good bit about this already, but the danger of neglecting this can be fatal to a marriage. A startling number of divorces these days are happening to couples who have been married for decades, but now the kids have left the house and their lives have been so wrapped up around the kids and other things. And over 20 plus years, each spouse has changed significantly. 
Many of these divorced couples are articulating that once the kids left, they felt like they were coexisting with a stranger. They didn't know their spouse anymore. Do not presume you can neglect investing in your marriage for a long time, and then just one day pick back up where you left off with no ill effects of that. Paul Tripp says this. He says things don't go bad in a marriage in an instant. The character of a marriage is not formed in one grand moment. Things in a marriage go bad progressively. Things become sweet and beautiful progressively. The development and deepening of the love in a marriage happens by things that are done daily. This is also true with the sad deterioration of a marriage. Right, another area of content is spiritually caring for each other. Are you talking with your spouse about your relationship with the Lord? Are you sharing what the Lord is teaching you? How you are wanting to grow? And are you asking that same question of them? Are you interested in their relationship with the Lord? Are you praying for them? Are you praying with them, guys? This is one of the ways you are called to lead your family. If your wife is having to regularly ask you for this type of time spent together, you are falling short of the shepherding call on your life that God has for you as a husband. This is an opportunity to grow in loving your wife in the way that Christ loves the church. If this is you, run to the Lord. There is abundant grace for you. God will help you grow in this. Another area related to caring spiritually for each other is asking for humble correction or insight into areas of growth. Ideally, this is something you're asking for regularly. A lot of people use the simple question of "How can I be a better husband to you?" or "How can I be a better wife to you?" That's not a bad question, but let me give you three questions that drill a little more specifically than that. The first question is this: What do you want me to start doing that I'm not doing right now? Second question is: What do you want me to stop doing that I'm doing right now? And the third question of this is: What do you want me to keep doing that blesses you? So, what do you want me to start doing that I'm not? What do you want me to stop doing that I am? And what do you want to make sure I keep doing because it builds you up and blesses you? Tim Keller quite bluntly says this. He says, "Give your spouse the right to talk to you about what is wrong with you." See, then we need to respond to that well. We don't want to respond wrongly、um, by withdrawing from our spouses, or fighting with them, or blaming them. And instead of running away from them or attacking them, couples must learn to work together to graciously help one another to grow. Ephesians four fifteen says, "Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ." See, humble correction is part of this truthing and love together. We just spoke on this on Sunday a few weeks ago in our Ephesians series. This truthing and love, this humble correction, is a gift to you. What we talk about matters, but ultimately, it is the heart of what we're communicating that's going to make all the difference in the world. So, our next section is the heart of communication. 
Scripture gives many principles on how we are to communicate to each other. We're only going to talk about a few of those for the sake of time, but these are important ones. First of all, prioritize communication. At first glance, this may seem more like a practical scheduling issue than a heart issue, but in reality, it is both. It's been said you can tell where a man's heart is by looking at his checkbook or looking at his calendar. When we are effectively stewarding the time God has given us, we prioritize the things that please him. If my relationship with my wife is more important to me than watching a movie, then I'm going to turn off the TV if necessary and spend time relating to her in a way that is building up relational intimacy. Yes, life does get busy in seasons. So plan for it. Prioritize your time. Guard it. Don't let lesser demands win the fight for what matters most. And for those of you with lots of children, I get it. Kids' lives are busy. It seems you're constantly shuttling them to one place or another, training them, caring for them, disciplining them, etc., etc. But keep in mind, What your kids need more than another extracurricular activity to experience in their life is a healthy home life with parents relating well to each other. Do you want your kids to have healthy, thriving marriages one day? Show them what it looks like. Display the mystery of the gospel as displayed in a God-honoring marriage relationship. Be an example to them. All right, second thing in the heart is your communication should be full of grace. Ephesians 4.29 tells us, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. See, our speech should build our spouse up, not tear them down. Our speech should give grace to our spouse, not heap condemnation on them. Jesus told us that it was out of the overflow of the heart that our mouth speaks. See, guarding our speech is a heart issue. We must cultivate a grace-filled disposition toward our spouse. It does not build up my spouse if I'm nitpicking at every little thing they do that I think is wrong. It does not build up my spouse if I'm quick to draw attention to the wrong things that my spouse does. See, in the Warren household, we've adopted a practice of always assuming the best intention from the other person. Now, that doesn't always mean the other person always has the most wholesome intention, but we don't need to police every little infraction and then demand an immediate trial and verdict and execution on every comment that's said. If something is said that was probably innocent, but in the most improbable situation could be interpreted as hurtful, We choose to be charitable in our assumption of the other person's intention. We rely on what we know to be true, what's been demonstrated in our marriage, that we are for each other. We have an agreement that there is, like if it becomes a pattern of behavior, or if the offended person is really struggling to walk in grace, that comment's just digging in there and they just can't let it go without talking about it then we're going to lean in and we're going to directly deal with that. Now, hear this. That does not mean we never correct each other or ask clarifying questions. 
it does mean that we discern the situation. If I'm angry about something else and in my anger, I just snap out at my wife. She does not feel the need to immediately confront that. She is discerning enough to understand that my anger isn't against her, but rather it's just my sin spilling out and splattering on those around me. My actions are inexcusable and she deserves an apology even though she lovingly seeks to carry to care for me to help me out of my mess to build me up rather than hold it against me and she doesn't demand an immediate restitution now eventually i'm going to need to repent to her and the lord will usually bring that to my attention but if not she will bring it up once we're not in the heat of the moment And if I'm following the principles from the last section, I'm going to be regularly asking if there are areas we need to discuss anyhow. The principle is this. Assume the best of each other. Be charitable in your judgments of your spouse. Seek to build up and where sin abounds, let grace abound all the more. All right, letter C. Be an encourager. Do you call out the evidences of grace you see in your spouse's life? Are you looking for ways to encourage them? Do you know what methods of encouragement your spouse responds to best? Mike gave us the example um, last week of just how he knows his wife Kristen doesn't doesn't respond well to flowers. She much rather he washed the dishes. Do you know what methods of encouragement your spouse responds to? Husbands, are you helping to establish this culture in your home? Are you leading by example? Ray Ortland says this, he says a wise husband cultivates his wife by setting a high tone of praise and affirmation in their home. Not neutral silence, certainly not insults, but bright, positive, life-giving praise. Let me ask this, if you have kids, would your kids say you encourage your spouse more? or that you criticize them more. All right, letter D. Be a good listener. In short, make understanding more important than being understood. Are you as good at listening as you are at talking? Proverbs 18:2 says, "A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion." Winston Smith says, Recognize that your understanding is always shaped and limited by your own perception. You never see everything. You only see what you see. You never hear everything. You only hear what you hear. Proverbs 18:13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So how do I be a good listener? Well, first, Close the mouth and open the ears. Listen. And secondly, give your full attention to your spouse. Set the phone down and look them in the eye. Third, ask questions and then ask more questions. Remember, we're seeking to understand. And then number four, communicate back what you heard them say. Make sure what you think they said is what they really did say. Now, these principles are good for everyday communication. But what do we do when conflict arises? 
Well, these principles become all the more important in a conflict. And there are some other ones we should talk about that are especially helpful in dealing with conflict. But let's first talk about steps we can take to avoid conflict. Our next section is proactively avoiding conflict. First of all, we shouldn't be surprised that conflicts arise at all. Marriage is two people who aren't finished yet. They're still being sanctified. And though Christ has saved the believer and the power of sin has been broken, its presence is still with us. And the sin in our heart, as we've said, often spills out onto those around us. Mark 7, 21, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. See, in God's effort to make us more like him, he will ordain circumstances that cause what needs to be purified from our heart to bubble up and out. If we are not privately mortifying sin in our hearts, he will bring our sin to light. And sometimes that happens in conflicts with our spouses. So how do we try and minimize conflict? How can we proactively seek to live peaceably in our household? Well, the answer is quite simple. We start with ourselves. We begin with us. We seek to deal with our own hearts first. We seek to grow in submission to the Lord in all things, rooting out that which can ultimately cause harm and destruction to us and to our spouses. Matthew 7, Jesus tells a very familiar story. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We're going to briefly look at three major logs that can regularly lead to conflict in our marriages. The first log is this, self-centeredness. Sin at its core thrusts us into the center of all things. The world revolves around our wants and desires. It's my kingdom come before we even remotely consider someone else's kingdom or desires. And this isn't just a learned behavior in some people. No one has ever had to teach any toddler ever to be selfish. Yeah? Rather, we labor repeatedly to teach them to share. This self-centeredness is not only unhelpful in our marriages. Hear this. It propels us in the exact opposite direction of love. The exact opposite. You don't have to struggle to imagine how toxic this can be in a marriage. Tim Keller says, self-centeredness is a havoc-wreaking problem in many marriages, and it is the ever-present enemy of every marriage. 
Therefore, when facing any problem in marriage, the first thing you look for at the base of it is, in some measure, self-centeredness and an unwillingness to serve or minister to the other. James 3.16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. It didn't say there might be disorder. It says there will be. We cannot turn a blind eye or deprioritize our tendencies to put ourselves first. And James wants to make sure we don't miss this point. Just a few verses later at the beginning of chapter 4, he says this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In short, James is saying you fight with each other because you're selfish. Another way to say it is this. When you try to unite two people who are going their own way, you have a tremendous potential for problems. We must contend with our self-centeredness and by the power of the Spirit, obey God's Word that says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, and He, Christ, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. All right, second log, pride. I'm sure each of us is all too familiar with pride. It's that detestable thing driving you. You know, when you're in an argument with somebody and it's escalating and this debate's going back and forth and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden you realize you're wrong and they're right. But you don't stop arguing because you can't admit that to them. The last thing you can do is let them know at this point that they're right. You've, 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 you've done too much. You're too far in at this point to back out. That's pride. Pride and self-centeredness are closely related. Pride says my way is best. Pride says I cannot learn from someone else or at least that person. Pride assumes your feelings and your experience in a situation are the only ones or at least the most significant ones that matter. And any other feeling is quite frankly just ridiculous. Pride declares that your needs are the most pressing needs. Pride hinders you from admitting when you are wrong. Pride fuels grudges to be held because after all, that person had the audacity to hurt you, even if they didn't mean to. I could go on and on and on. Gordon MacDonald says, pride is at the root of almost all marital conflict. Pride is the part of us that cannot face being wrong. Thus, we will not accept criticism, easily evaluate facts which suggest that we hold the wrong opinion, or allow for the possibility that there simply may be times when our partner is right and we are dead wrong. As long as being the strongest, the best, and the rightest is top priority, conflict will be destructive. What a burden is lifted when, no one, long, when one no longer has to be right about everything. Let me say that again since I messed it up. What a burden is lifted when one no longer has to be right about everything. What a good quote from Gordon MacDonald. 
Admittedly, this falls into the easier said than done category. Nevertheless, if husbands and wives would discover or better still be willing to ask their spouses where they're tempted to be selfish and instead purpose to serve. Discover where they're tempted to be proud and instead purpose to be humble. Most marriage problems would be avoided. James 4, 6 tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Gary and Betsy Ricucci summarize what can happen when our self-centeredness and pride combine in our interactions. They say this, when our desire meets with disagreement or disappointment, we start to see what sort of hold it has on us. If we say to ourselves, I can't believe he doesn't want to talk to me right now, or doesn't she realize I'm tired when I come home from work and just want some time alone? We have a problem. Here, desire has begun to reveal a craving, lust, or sinful passion. You know the line has been crossed when you are no longer counting your spouse as more significant than yourselves, Philippians 2.3. We must daily seek to root out the pride in our hearts and cultivate humility. Our marriages will be enriched by those efforts. All right, third log, anger. Anger is the gas on the fire in our interactions. Many conflicts shift from the original problem and escalate because of anger. Discussions turn into arguments. Conversations turn into conflicts. We're going to talk about avoiding this escalation in just a brief moment, but let me just say these two quick things about anger. First of all, anger is horribly destructive. Proverbs 12, 18 says there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Rash words are like sword thrusts. Your outburst of anger is violently wounding the heart of your spouse, which is why the second thing I want to say about anger is so critical. And it's this. Anger is controllable. Anger is controllable. Let me just pepper you with some Bible truth here. Colossians 3.8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. It says anger can be put away. Proverbs 29.11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. It's like you've seen in movies or probably done yourself at some point in time when there's this huge fight going on and you're just you're just angry getting at each other and then the doorbell rings or the phone rings and then you you answer it with this happy perky voice like hey how are you oh i'm doing great how are you doing <laughs> yeah you know what i mean god's word tells us also that there are good effects to controlling our anger proverbs 15:1 says a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs fifteen eighteen says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. In Proverbs seventeen twenty seven, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. 
it is wise and bears good fruit in our marriages to count others more significant than ourselves, to root out prideful thinking and acting, and to stamp out and control our anger. If these are your normal ways of dealing with conflict, then you may be wondering, what do I do? What should I do if I'm not supposed to do these things? Well, our last section today is restoring communication. As we've already stated, conflicts are inevitable, but in God's sovereign purposes, they can be redemptive in nature. Gary and Bessie Ricucci say this. They say, because God is sovereign and ever at work for our good and our growth and godliness, conflict can always be redemptive. The storms of conflict actually test how we're building our marriages. You can think of conflicts as spiritual pop quizzes from God. (laughs) That's a good way to look at that, isn't it? R.C. Sproul says, even the best marriages have problems. Often the difference between a healthy marriage and a defective one is not the number and severity of problems encountered, but in the way problems are dealt with. So let's quickly consider 10 principles in dealing with conflict and restoring relational intimacy with your spouse. All right, principle number one, be a peacemaker. This may seem basic, but you need to determine to make peace, not to keep breaking peace, not to fake peace, but to really have true reconciliation and the true peace that comes from that. All right, principle number two, Plan for conflict. Understand that conflicts are going to arise. Grow in knowing your spouse. What tempts them? Where do they struggle? Let this increase your sensitivity to them and not be used as bullets that you hold on to for your next conflict. Form a game plan with your spouse before a conflict starts. It is infinitely harder to do this in the midst of a conflict. It's kind of like trying to gather your family together into the family room to figure out an escape plan in case of a fire while the house is burning down around you in an inferno. Are there certain things that you are willing to agree to with your spouse that may be helpful to be reminded of in the midst of a conflict? Let me suggest a few verses that might be helpful to put in this game plan. Psalm 103.10 He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.12-13 Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You get the idea. The next principles might also be things you want to mutually commit to in your game plan. Principle number three, avoid gossiping about or slandering your spouse. Quite simply, don't talk to others about problems with your spouse if you haven't talked to your spouse about it. Don't go and rally support from a posse of friends who are going to see your limited perspective on things and get you all riled up for a fight. 
Go back and look at the self-centeredness and pride sections we talked about earlier. If you have a problem with your spouse, go to them. If your spouse is like me, most of the hurtful things I do to my spouse aren't intentional. I'm just oblivious or neglectful or careless in my speech. Tell your spouse, give them a chance to engage with you on this. Give them the opportunity to repent to you about this. Little things do not need to become big things. And all that being said, give your spouse permission to bring select folks into the conversation. If, if they've made a valid effort to engage with you and you refuse to be responsive, my wife knows she has my blessing to reach out to a few select guys in my life if she feels like I'm ignoring her concerns. She doesn't need to worry about sinning behind my back because I've released her to engage those select folks in her effort to engage me if her appeals to me are falling on deaf ears. All right, principle number four. Assume the best about your spouse. We've already said this. Enter into the discussion with an open mind, not having predetermined who's right and who's wrong and exactly why that is. Don't start out assuming the worst of your spouse. You certainly would not want them doing that to you. Principle number five, get to the root of the issue and don't muddy the waters with peripheral issues. This often involves asking a ton of questions. We've said it already. Seek first to understand. Here are some guidelines to use in this. First, understand what the real issues are. Second, understand what the person is really saying and meaning. Third, avoid courtroom scenarios by being accusatory or defensive or judging their motives. Here's what I mean by that. Don't say, you tried to hurt me with those words. Instead say, I felt hurt when you said this. Do you see the difference there? The fourth thing you can do in this is stay on the subject. Don't venture off and start dragging out everything that's ever existed that you want to complain or talk about. Stay on the subject. Fifth thing, make discovering where you were wrong more important than pointing out where your spouse was wrong. And then be quick to repent and ask forgiveness. Remember the log and speck from Matthew 7. Listen and seek to understand. All right, principle six, we just mentioned it. Be quick to confess your sin. Confess your sin to the Lord and your spouse. Any sin you commit is first against the Lord. Humbly admit that you were wrong, express your sorrow for that sin, and ask for forgiveness. And then principle number seven, be quick to forgive. Ephesians 4.32, we read it just a moment ago. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, we can forgive because we have been forgiven. Whatever debt we feel owed from our spouse because of their sin pales in comparison to the massive debt of ours forgiven by Christ through his loving sacrifice, taking our penalty upon himself and then lavishing mercy and grace on us. As believers, we strive to be more like Christ. We must not hold our spouses to a merit system when Christ has not held our wrongs against us. 
let's be Christ-like in how we treat each other. Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Make sure the debt has been canceled and not just stored in a back room to be pulled out later and weaponized in your next conflict. See, the command to forgive is exactly that. It's a command. Forgiveness is not conditional on the other person's behavior or response. It's not like, well, I'll submit to him if he loves me better. And it's not, well, I'll love her better if she would submit to me. If you do that, you're going to get caught in a cycle of tit for tat or the you go first system. It's, it's kind of like when you are trying to trade with someone that you don't trust and you're not willing to let go of what you have until you have theirs, but they're not willing to let go. And there's this sort of tug of war going until all of a sudden there's a, boo, okay, and you each have your, your thing that you want. Don't be like that in, with your spouse. You go first in forgiving. Obedience to Christ does not make forgiving others optional, even if they don't forgive you. Principle number eight, have both urgency and patience. Don't let sin get a foothold. Be quick to deal with the little things. Little things just mount up and turn into big things when they're not dealt with. Marriages rarely crumble from a single act. And not dealing with the little things can often result in major offenses that can be much more painful and much harder to rebuild from. Don't let things fester. Have a sense of urgency. But also cultivate patience in your heart. Change often doesn't happen in an instant. You may have been thinking about something for weeks or even months and you you finally say something to your spouse. It's not unreasonable that they may need some time to consider that observation that you've brought to them and then respond accordingly to it. Trust God to work in your heart and your spouse's heart over time. And hear this, hear this. Commit to love them in the process. After all, our marriages, like we said, they're not on the merit system. We should not withhold affection. We should not withhold care from our spouses until they agree that we are right and they are wrong. That is not how we biblically love each other. The term for this is forbearance. Gary and Betsy Ricucci very helpfully say, forbearance is not just tolerance. It is a commitment grounded in faith to love a fellow sinner in full acknowledgement of his or her unconfessed sin. It is an active and sometimes difficult decision to respond to sin with mercy in the confidence that God is always at work in the heart of your spouse. Committing yourself to serve in the sanctification process over time is not to ignore or excuse your spouse's sin. It is to recognize that the Spirit of God generally brings illumination, understanding, and conviction gradually. Humble patience in a conflict echoes the long-suffering nature of God's love for us. All right, principle number nine. Follow up and ensure that there is truly full reconciliation over the issue. Reconciliation requires true confession and true repentance. Confession and repentance also, it's not simply saying I'm sorry and the other person saying, that's okay. 
If someone sinned against another, it's not adequate just to say, "I'm sorry." We must confess our sin and ask for forgiveness. Also, if we're the one being repented to, please don't respond with something unhelpful like, "Don't worry about it," or "That's okay." It is not okay when someone sins against another. Maybe what you meant to say was, "I forgive you," and we are okay. Well, if that's what you meant to say, say that then. Say thank you for confessing your sin. I forgive you. I'm not going to hold this against you. We are okay. We are reconciled. With vague, don't worry about it responses, we don't communicate our release of that person from the debt owed to us. They may then continue to carry guilt for that, and we may pile on more sin by walking in unforgiveness or bitterness toward them. See, the enemy loves to use things like this to to harm our marriages. Don't make it easy on him. Don't make it easy for him. All right, principle number ten, and this is the most important one. There is hope for change. Long term problems can present a unique challenge to couples as they begin to come to grips with them and they're making necessary changes. See, asking forgiveness is only the first step to rebuilding. It's not the last step. One of the most common challenges that couples have in rebuilding is getting discouraged in the midst of that process. We need to fight this pull toward discouragement because God is at work in our marriages. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is working in each believing spouse, and He's pretty capable of doing some pretty impossible things. Winston Smith says, "If you've experienced enough of these ordinary moments without sensing any change, you either become accustomed to the annoyance and indifferent to it, or worse, you abandon any hope for change. Indifference and hopelessness are both dangerous." The danger is simply isn't simply that you're unhappy or that your marriage is less than it could be. It's that God becomes increasingly irrelevant to your marriage, the relationship that defines your life more than any other. So, how do you apply this principle? You maintain hope. You acknowledge progress as you see it. Have you improved two percent? Don't focus on the ninety-eight percent you still have to go. Celebrate the two percent that's there. Call out the grace that you're seeing, and then resist the urge to go back to zero when you hit the normal speed bumps that happen during that process. Resist the urge to just give up and say nothing's changed and nothing's ever going to change. I knew it. And lastly, don't settle for less than the best. Don't settle for less than the best. Winston Smith says the most dangerous moments in marriage and life occur when you believe that nothing you do will make a difference. God desires your marriage to be pleasing to Him even more than you do. Trust in Him, follow His leading and His commands, and then watch Him carry out His plan for His children's good and for His glory. All right, let's pray.